I'm going to read from the poem tonight since we don't have, I'm really nervous about touching this thing. Um, you don't have copies of the poems, so um, I'm just going to read them and, and see if I can't get copies to you next week. So you'll have to read. You know, you, um, we won't do them again after tonight. But. Okay. Any, any prayer requests? Connie, come on, yeah, good for you. I'd like to pray for my uncle, uh, our uncle that's down, he's in hospice, and um, just really for the salvation of the soul, basically, because he's kind of mad and um, so upset. Um, bless your soul, bless your soul. <coughs> Such a mystery, such a mystery. Wait, wait just one second. Um, we're about ready to end up a finish up a year at St. Francis, and we're going to do Dostoevsky's brothers Karamazov after we. Yeah, we're about ready to start. We're we're finishing up um, T. S. Eliot's Murder in the Cathedral, which is about martyrdom, holiness. And I was talking to the group about possibly doing one more Shakespeare play and maybe some Eliot to, to finish the course. Um, and the poem that I'd read for them is a poem called Marina. It's by T.S. Eliot. It's about a daughter. It, it's T.S. It's Eliot taking from Shakespeare's Pericles. And it's a, it's a play in which a man sets out to marry this woman. I don't want to go into it. I hate giving stories away. Something happens, presents him with a puzzle and he realizes that if he answers it correctly, his, his life will be over. So he has to find some way of escaping the situation that he's in, and he flees. And while he's at sea, um, he thinks his wife dies, and she's pregnant. And so he loses his wife and daughter. And, um, and they've already read Winter's Tale. I don't know if any of you have read Winter's Tale, but I, I, think, it's, I think it's Shakespeare's finest work, and, and nobody reads it, but it's, it's the closest thing to a paradisal experience that I know of in literature, even, even more than Dante's Paradise. Um, in that play, in Winter's Tale, Leontes the king loses his queen and his son, and the, 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 the queen is pregnant and gives birth to a daughter, and the king is convinced that the daughter is not his, so he sends her away to be killed. And the king is convinced that he's right in what he's doing and sends off messengers and embassy to an oracle to Apollo and Apollo comes, the, the embassy comes back with the oracle and the oracle says, Leontes is a tyrant, um, he, what he's done is wrong and he will be without an heir until that which is lost is found. And the daughter's name is Perdida. And, um, I, I don't, we're not doing it here, but she, she's taken off and she ends up at the, uh, on the, in the city of the man that, that Leontes thought was the one who had an affair with his wife. None of it was true. He, it was all imagined. Um, and the daughter grows up there and late in the place, a set of circumstances bring, brings her back to Leontes. I don't, I don't want to go into it, but it's, it's a moment of recovery and what, God, I hate giving away plays. Don't. <laughs>
I've got to do it here. He's going to discover that his wife is alive. Paulina, his maidservant, had kept her um, waiting on the outcome of the oracle. So what's at the center of that play is an act of faith. It's all about a king using his power and the way um, rulers can abuse power. When he thinks he's lost his wife and his children, he does lose his son, he dies, and his daughter. Paulina, the, the maidservant, says, you cannot marry until I tell you. And she's waiting on the oracle. So it's an act of faith. Sixteen years later, his daughter will come back. In that reunion, in that, it, it, it puts me to tears. I mean, it's just, it's one of the most extraordinary scenes in all of literature. It's, it's as close to paradise as I know. I think what Shakespeare's doing is, is showing us this is what's going to happen in heaven. That all the things that you've lost will be returned. Um, that's our faith, and sometimes I, I, I think, I hope, that those of us who pray for others that we're worried about, our hope is that faith. Our God's too incredible not to make a place for that kind of faith. You know? I, I can't speak authoritatively, but I'm just saying that as a, as a note of hope, that that's our hope, that um, we hope, that's our prayer, you're praying, um, you've prayed a number of times now, um, that the things that we've lost in this world have been the source of suffering, or you know, they'll all be restored and with a glory far beyond anything we know in this world. So I'm glad you're praying that. What's his name? Robert. Sorry? Robert. Robert? Yes. And I have a prayer for Dominic Short, who's in hospital. <coughs> How old? No, I, I really don't know that. Ten. 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 Yeah, but he's in hospice. Mm -hmm. Okay. He's born with a rare condition that they don't really have a name for. It. Yeah. Mary, did you have something? Did you have a prayer? Yeah, I have a prayer request. Uh, my son-in-law, Jeremy, he's been my son-in-law five years and he's never been Have you approached him and asked him to? But you have opened up the subject to him. Right. So I just kind of this weekend back to the Lord. Yeah. He did. He did come yeah, to good. Ask. How, how old? How old? He's like 31. 31. You're more tactful than I am. My question would be why aren't you baptized? Why aren't you Catholic? <laughs> I actually said that there was a young, um, a young woman at UD who was a good friend of our children. Um, she, she, black, raised in a black Baptist community, you know, that was her background, and, but she went through a period of um, real searching. She loved our children, and she came to love us more than our children she, when, she just, when we talked. And anyway, she, um, she became Catholic. She's a sister. She's a nun now. 
the convent in uh, Grand, Pra or Grand Prairie. Um, it's wonderful to see those moments when they happen. Somebody else had a hand. Are we? You're so far away, I can almost not see you. today. You guys have got to help me out because there's no way I'm going to remember this. Let's, um, let's start. Well, I'm glad for your help. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, <laughs> my wife is already six steps ahead of me where she usually is. Um, for Robert. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life this day and the gift of yourself to us, um, for your presence through the day, um, actually, and actually for an extraordinary glory right here in us, um, the great hearts opening to you, um, what a great faith um, um, that's here um, for all those people um, inwardly saying prayers to you and for those who are not answer all of these prayers please um, you you know our hearts better than we do ourselves but to just share these things um, increases a power of our faith that we're one with others um, let that increased power strengthen us in our efforts always to turn to you ask a special blessing on on Robert. Um, um, in whatever time he has left, open his heart. Um, let something happen um, to get past whatever walls are there. Um, please. Um, and if he goes to his death closed, um, forgive him his sins. Um, let a welcome be given to him in purgatory um, in a time to find you, to grow into the things that um, were possible for him here. And I ask a special blessing on Connie um, for her good heart, um, her trust in you and us. Um, Dominic, um, watch, watch over that little guy. Um, whatever handicaps, deformity he has, um, I trust we all know grace perfects nature. Nobody will go to the next world with defects. Whatever things kept us from realizing the nature we've been given will we'll disappear. Um, let him know the joy of growing into a whole body. Um, on the transfiguration, we're, we're promised that we will have a body that we can't even imagine. Um, so help those that he leaves behind take a joy knowing what will happen to that boy entering your kingdom. Um, Mary's son-in-law, Mary, sorry, what's his name? Jeremy. Jeremy. Um, um, give Mary the courage to go to him. Keep Helena on her mind to take you with her. Um, not pushing, not an arrogance, just in truth. 
in doing that, she will bring him you to him. Um, but whatever happens, watch over that um, young man and help him come to you. Um, let something happen to open his heart and his mind. Um, <laughs> and to join Mary in whatever time they have left together. And um, we offer prayers too for um, the Adoration Chapel. Um, remembering that there's this extraordinary grace that we share together in these prayers, not privately, um, together. Um, we offer all of these prayers in your name. Can you hear me okay? Can you, you, can you? Is that better, or can you hear me okay without it? It's better. God, I can't. Um, God. Um, so I'm used to this stuff. I want to just say a word of thanks, uh, heartfelt, that you guys would have the courage. Bless you. You would have the courage to share your hearts this way. You know. We're not in church, well, this, this is church, but we're not in church, and you all are opening yourselves, and it's humbling to be a part of it, so that you express the trust that you do is certainly a blessing for me, and I'm trusting it is for you, so. Okay, um, I'm going to read two poems. Ooh, I was just going to say, boy, that's scary. We had that thought at the same time. It's going to happen. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen, Doug. Um, what was I going to say? I'm going to read these two poems, and next week I'll, I'll give you copies so you don't have them. But you know my feeling about this anyway. Poems are meant to be read. Uh, I mean, spoken through. Sorry. <laughs> Did the green light stay on? It's still up. Well, it's okay. That's good. Thanks. Can you hear me? Does that help? Okay. Um, you know my own feelings about this, that poems, if we keep them in the silence of our heads, they're incorporeal. Yeah? They're angelic. They have no body. We're not angels. We're not angels. As much as our Protestant brethren want to act like we are in our heads, we're supposed to accept the body. That's our nature. There's a glory in our body. That's how God made us. We're not angels. So, um, if we ever get to Dante together, oop. if we ever get to Dante together, um, we'll see that. Um, so I'll read them. Okay, and I'm, I, just a word about them, but um, just enjoy the sound hearing them. I'm glad you, you can't look at it paper. That means you really have to listen. Um, two poems. Both of them are about epics. Okay, one deals explicitly with the epic theme, and one of them is a poem by um, William Butler Gates, who was, I think, one of the three, four, three great poets of the 20th century. Elliot Yates and Wallace Stevens. <clears throat> um, so, um, two poems, and I'm going to read them both. They're so different, 
and each of them gives you a different take on the epic. And then I'm going to take two minutes, no more. Sorry. There's something really consistent about this church. In, in, just know that as the ship is going down, we've got each other here. I'm, Okay. Um, the first poem is by an Irishman named Patrick Cavanaugh. It's called Epic. Do you have it? No, sorry. Oh, sorry. Epic. I have lived in important places, times when great events were decided who owned that half of a root of rock, a no man's land surrounded by our pitchfork armed claims. Imagine. Irish farmers, you know, ready to fight over a fence or a animal or something. Surrounded by our pitchfork armed claims. I heard the Duffies shouting, damn your soul. An old McCabe stripped to the waist, seen step the plot to find blue cast steel. Here's the march along these iron stones. That was the year of the Nunich, the Nunich brother, father, sorry, Nunich, this is the war. Which was more important? I inclined to lose my faith in Ballyrush and Gordon till Homer's ghost came whispering to my mind. He said, I made the Iliad from such a local row. Gods make their own importance. It's about a nothing. And he's saying, that's the nature of the epic. And I'm saying that very seriously. Um, Helen took, or I mean, Paris took Helen. They ran off together. Those things happen all the time. Yeah, they do. Sadly, they do. Um, but are epics ever made of them? I mean, in one sense, what he's saying is that there's an epic story behind every one of us, all around us. Do we see it? Homer is opening that to us to help us see whatever ordinary things go on around us, there's something much, much greater, something cosmic going on at the same time. Dante's going to make that clear when we do the Divine Comedy. So that's Kavanaugh's poem, Epic. This one is by William Butler, William Butler Yeats. It's called Leda and the Swan. And the myth behind this is that Zeus mated with Leda, the, the swan, and produced Helen. And as you know, she's the sort of direct cause of the Trojan War. <coughs> the beauty that, that cast a, what is it, 20,000 ships or? Uh, a thousand ships. Hmm? A thousand. A thousand ships. Lead in the swan. A sudden blow, the great wings beating still above the staggering girl, her thighs caressed by the dark webs, her nape caught in his bill. He holds her helpless breast upon his breast. How can those terrified, vague fingers push the feathered glory from her loosening thighs? It's a rape. It's the divine coming upon a woman. Um, how can those terrified, vague fingers push the feathered glory from her loosening thighs? And how can body, laid in that white rush, but feel the strange heart beating where it lies? A shudder in the loins engenders there the broken wall, the burning roof and tower, and Agamemnon dead. Being so caught up, so mastered by the brute blood of the air, did she put on his knowledge with his power, 
before the indifferent beak could let her drop. I just, I don't want to go over this because it's not our focus, but I want to ask this question. The question that Yates is asking here is, um, um, did she receive any knowledge in that um, rape, that exchange, when the divine power took her over and gave her that beauty, you know, that, that extraordinary amplitude, plenitude of beauty? Did she put on his knowledge with his power before the indifferent beak could let her drop? I want to just ask this question for just a second. Is there anything that we, and, and I know we've just started, we've just started here. Is there anything from our reading of the Iliad up to this point, or from our knowledge of our God, that would justify the use of indifferent? Is Zeus indifferent? Is our God indifferent to what goes on here? No. Just hold on to that, that's all. It's just a question, I don't want to go into it, but because I think this is a powerful poem. What he's doing is going back to the founding of Western civilization. He knows it, and he's, and he's taking this act as essential. But the question he leaves us with is, did she put on his knowledge with his power before the indifferent beak could let her drop? Is Zeus indifferent? Is our God, the Father in the Old Testament, Christ, and, you know, would anything justify using that word to describe our God? I would say no, just no. Um, okay, let's, let's start. I'll give you copies of these next, oh, I'm going to call, you do? Good, sorry. Mary, you were supposed to listen to that and not look for any poems. And, and don't act innocent. Major question that I want to put out before we start. Major question. Here, I'm just asking the question that I've been putting out for the last several weeks. What was God doing before Christ came? Are there intimations of his coming in the world? We know of prophecies. We know from Isaiah, the book in the Old Testament, that something's coming. Yeah? So we know in the Old Testament um, that God is at work, even if the Jews never always saw him, they knew he was working. And all along there is a prophecy that a Messiah will come. That something will be offered from the divine order that will answer all of men's problems. Do we learn something about Christ from these hints, these prophecies, these intimations, something about ourselves? So if we go back to the ancient world outside of Old Testament, so now we're looking at the Iliad, we'll do the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Iliad. Are we learning something about God from it? And I, do, and I don't, obviously we're in a pantheon. Um, Homer's showing us a pantheon of gods. There's Zeus and Athena and Hera and Poseidon and Apollo. Um, and we can, 
we can just leave it at that. Or we can ask, what are these gods' images? I mean, what, is, what is Homer showing us to the best of his ability about the way gods or the gods are interacting with men? Um, one of the first interesting revelations I had about the Iliad long after I started reading it, so I'd been teaching it for years, but it suddenly occurred to me at some point in my life of dealing with this poem that one of the values of the Iliad, as I saw it, is that it shows us God is always present. Even if you take you know, um, images of him, like these individual gods, what these gods still show us, what they give us, is what we can call um, the Imago Dei. Images of God, an image of God. Some aspect of God, something of the divine uh, interacting us. Um, it's interesting, it was interesting for me to think about the Iliad in that term because it made me wonder or made me realize that God's never not with us. We, we often think of wars as being off good, off page. All these evil bad things happen. That's the last place God could be. You know, we're, we're what lots of men want to, want to call evil. I don't think that's the case. I don't think wars are inherently evil. Uh, very often we have to fight a war to answer evil. We have to answer it. But it is from without seeing God everywhere. Um, so one of the ways, one of the questions that I began to have that during that period is, is there some way in which what's going on in the Iliad is revealing the Holy Spirit at work, seen very differently in according to aspects, but present, when men are killing each other? I don't believe God leaves. Depart leaves us, abandons us when we're at war. He's, he's, <laughs> if that isn't clear, I, I hope it's clear, we live in what we take to be a peaceful society. But abortion is one of the most horrendous sins of our time. And it's, it, nobody would, sadly, none of the people would call that a war, but it is. And it, is, it, it, it involves an evil that's a holocaust that's part of our lives. Um, I don't believe God abandons us. We're all implicated in it. This is our world. So one of the values of looking at the Iliad is that it, it, it shows um, 200 year, or 800 years before Christ came that poets are aware of a divine order interacting with the human order. Something's going on. Okay? Men are involved in a mystery. Um, and one of the, you know from what we've said briefly about it and from the opening pages that the central theme of the of the Iliad is Achilles's anger and Zeus's will. That's the announced theme. So at some point we've got to ask, um, what is it about Achilles that allows this man to have the place that he does at the end of the play? Lots of people are going to claim, lots of moderns claim that Hector is the real hero. I don't see that so. I think you'll see it clearly if you don't see it yet. But. Um, is the hero at the end. He's the one left standing. Hector's going to die. And we're going to see Hector do a number of embarrassing things. It's going to give him away. All of these men are flawed. They all have faults. What is it that accounts for this man's greatness? What is it that Homer saw in him that made him single out Achilles' anger and Zeus's will? Okay? 
when you read, you know that over and over and over again, um, there are references to destiny or fate, as if things are, even Zeus himself talks about things that are going to happen, that, that are fated. Um, so we've got to keep in mind this mystery. What is it about Achilles that sets this man apart, that makes him the hero of this work? It's a work about war, about people killing each other. Um, why, why is Achilles singled out? What's the importance of this anger? Um, as I've said before, I think the, the great theme of the Iliad and all the epics that follow him is, is a founding. That, um, that a people are living in a disorder, they're carrying it, they're not aware of it. Um, a man is called out, it's like Abraham, a man is called out to, to be the, um, the instrument for making a change, giving this people a new identity. And I, I think we've all read enough to know right now that what's the, what the problem here is, um, is that these people, all of them, East and West, have a flawed sense of honor. They do not understand that there's an inherent dignity to man. We talked about that last week. The dignity that man has is conferred on him by booty, by possessions, women, armor, horses, chariots. Achilles steps outside of that world and something's going to happen. Okay, so what are we, where are we going? What, what are we going to learn about man? That's peculiar to the West, not the East. Okay, there are two very different ways of looking at man in this book. So one is this whole question of honor, what is honor? The other is there are radical differences between East and West. The gods that oversee both peoples are very, very different. Um, what we learn is that people tend to see gods, the divine, through the filter of their own interest. Eastern people are different from the West. They, they see gods differently. Um, different gods are responsive. That's an indication that they stand towards the divine in a different way. Um, and the, the last thing that we talked about last week is this notion of a logos. And remember, I read that passage from Benedict's work, Western Culture. Um, mm -mm. I just want to repeat it again because I think it's, it's so good. Benedict's talking about the task of a Christian and he says, our task as contemporary Christians is to make sure that our idea of God is not excluded from the debate about man. And you know that in the modern world he's virtually excluded. And the scientific view dominates the political. Um, the religious view is in so many ways um, excluded or pushed to the back. This idea of God has two essential characteristics. God himself is the Logos, the rational origin of all reality, the creative reason from which the world came forth and which is reflected in the world. God is logos, meaning reason, the word. We very often use the word wisdom. We can use logos, reason. Therefore, man complies with the logos by keeping an open mind and defending a type of reason that is not blind to the moral dimension of meaning. For logos means a reason that is not simply mathematical, but is at the same time the foundation and guarantee of the good. It protects the dignity of man. If we're made in his image, God is good, so is man. Lose that image of the Logos and the modern world has, we lose a sense of man's dignity. 
He's a thing, a product of forces. Faith in God as Logos is also faith in the creative power of reason. It is faith in God the Creator, which means believing that man is created in the image of God and that he therefore shares in the inviolable dignity of God himself. He goes on to say that God is not only Logos, but he's love. But for our purposes, I want to focus on Logos because we know that the epic means word, Logos. And um, that word permeates everything. You know in the Greek world, in the ancient world, there was, there was nothing that didn't have the gods in it. Streams, embodied nymphs, goddesses, trees, earth, mountains, it doesn't matter. God permeated, it was his world. So God is, the Logos is everywhere. Okay? The Protestant world denies that because the world's corrupted. The scientific world denies that. They can't go to a God. And with their starting assumptions, they can't start there. So. But we've entered a world in which the Logos is real, active, everywhere. Okay. And I suggested, remember I read that passage from uh, Simone Weil, which is, I think, a masterpiece of writing. And it's so, um, um, it's exemplary of modern attitudes. It, it, it illustrates so well the, the modern reading of the Iliad. She says, remember, the true hero, the true subject, the center of the Iliad is force, force employed by man, force that enslaves man, force before which man's flesh shrinks away. In this work at all times, the human spirit is shown as modified by its relation with force, as swept away, blinded by the very force it imagined it could handle. And she goes on. And I suggested that um, although on the surface that's what the poem seems to be about, I think it's about something larger. And we won't see that until we get to the end and put the whole action. Remember, when we're reading poems, like reading the Bible, we can't read for parts. We cannot. We've got to learn to see holes. You know that yourself. Read a book for the first time, you'll never understand it. Read it the second time, you know the whole. And because you know the whole, when you come across parts, you're going to see meaning to those parts that you could have never seen the first time. Those parts reflect they're part of something larger. We don't get to it until we get to the whole. So what is this whole of the Iliad? I don't believe its central thesis is it's a work about force. What I suggested last time is um, it's about the emergence of this sense of a logos in man's life. It's this logos, the gods, this divine order that gives a structure, a purpose, and a direction to the use of power. If power is left on its own, the world, the world is meaningless. People are just going to kill each other. It's the presence of this force, this divine order, inter interacting with the human, the temporal order, that brings about the order of this poem, the answer to these disorders. What is that going to be? We, we have to wait to the end. Okay? Um, but this is not a meaningless poem about force. It's, 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 a, it's about a new view of the nature of man that Homer saw beneath all this violence. There was something <coughs> extraordinary to man. That's my claim. I hope I can live up to this now. Okay? Okay. Um, let me stop. Any questions? Just quickly, looking back. This is just a quick review. I want to get on to what we're doing tonight. Tonight, what I'd like to do is I'd, look, I'd like to look at a couple of themes. Um, some of them I um, probably wouldn't think about, but um, I'd 
think they're really important, so. First theme. Um, you're, you will hear me as long as we're together coming back to this again and again and again. I, I, there'll probably not be a work that we read that I won't bring this up. The question that I'm asking here is, from Homer's perspective, how well the men read. This is not an educated world. They're soldiers, and I know that. Um, I, I think, if, I mean, I tell this to, in the classes that, you know, in St. Francis, and we've been in the modern world, the ancient world. I don't believe we read very well at all. And I say that as somebody who's got a PhD. I think the danger is the more educated you are, the likely is that you'll read more and more poorly. Because you think you have answers, and you think you see things, and there's a certain blindness that comes with that. So I'm upfront with that here. Um, and I want to introduce it now because I think it's a part of the story. So let me just give some examples. How well did Agamemnon read that opening offer on the part of Chryseus to ransom his daughter? Did he have any clue of what the implications of his actions would be? None. None. When Agamemnon had his dream, it was a false dream sent by Zeus. How well did he read that dream? None, yeah? Were we together? Yeah. Um, this is um, book four, line 410. You don't have to go there. It's page 124. Diomedes has just gotten into an argument with Agamemnon because Agamemnon's all over it, saying, get back in the war and fight. That's what a king should do. At one point, Diomedes says, Agamemnon will receive the honor for sacking Troy. You don't know the end of it, but I can tell you, Agamemnon will not be the one to bring Troy down. It'll be Achilles. How well does Diomedes see his king? And how many, just for an instant, how many people close to a president, go back to Obama, go back to Bush, let it be Trump, how many men close to a president um, can get past their ties to a president to actually see what's going on with the president? Or at least the way these poets are. Very often it's the closeness of somebody in power that blinds a person, prejudices it. Um, after the opening, the Greeks go and offer um, sacrifices to Zeus. And if you've read well, you know what happens um, to Athena and the gods. Do the gods accept those sacrifices? No, they don't. I mean, we don't have time to go through this, but um, immediately after that quarrel between Agamemnon and um, Achilles, the king asked the people to make sacrifices to do, and it says the gods rejected them. Does that remind you of anything? What, Mary? Our God, he does one sacrifice once. Good for you. God bless you. You're scary. <laughs> right on. In a good way. Right, yes? He says, I don't want sacrifices. He says, I don't, because, and what are the people doing all the time? making sacrifices, and often the gods are refusing them. Homer saw that. He didn't have the Old Testament handy. Um, the question is, what happens to men's hearts? Are their hearts going to change? Because very often people offer sacrifices as if, they're buy or as if they're capable of buying God off. Look what I've done for you. God did not want that. How well do men read? Polydamus, um, 
Turn to page 263. I want to look at this because it's, it's such a giveaway. Polydamus is um, a, um, one of Hector's closest friends. Um, Give us a book at line because our, our Yeah, it's book 12 around line 200. Thanks for reminding me. Um, the Greeks, following uh, Nestor's advice, remember, build a ditch and a wall. And if you've been reading closely, you know you should have some sense of the irony of that. Because anytime you do something to protect yourself and rely mostly on yourself or exclusively on yourself and not rely on the gods, what's going to happen? Accept the Lord, build the house, they labor in vain to build it. You know. So that ditch is going to play a real role here. Hector reaches a point where he's um, in the ascendancy. He's pushing the, the uh, Achaeans back to the ships. And Polydamus is going to say, do not cross that ditch. Why not? I mean, strategically, why would that not be a wise idea right now? You get trapped. You get trapped. Right? Polydamus, take a look on page, this, or sorry, book 12 around line 200. As they were urgent to cross a bird sign and appeared to them an eagle flying high and holding to the left the people and carrying its talons a gigantic snake, blood-colored, alive still and breathing, it did not forgotten its warcraft. Yet for writhing back it struck the evil that eagle that held it by chest and neck, so that the eagle let it drop groundward. So it picked up this thing to eat, but it bites it back. <laughs> it's like an image of what's going to happen here. It lets it drop, fall, in the midst of the battle, and itself screaming high, winging away down the wind's blast. The Trojans shivered with fear as they looked on at the little snake lying in their midst, a portent of Zeus of the Aegis. And now Polydamus stood beside bold Hector and spoke to him, Hector, somehow in assembly you move ever against me, though I speak excellently indeed. There is no good reason for you and your skill to, to argue wrong neither in the councils now in the fighting and ever to be upholding your own cause. Now once more I'll speak, he says, let us not go on and fight the Danans by their ship. Go down, he talks about what just happened. He said, we shall not take the same way back from the ships in good order. Hector says down below, well, the things please me no longer. But if in all seriousness this is your true argument, then it's the very gods who have ruined the brain within you. You who are telling me to forget the councils, of thunderous Zeus, in which he himself nodded his head at me and assented. Go down. No, let us put our trust in the counsel of great Zeus, he who is Lord over all mortal men and all the immortals. One bird sign is best to fight in defense of our country. Um, how well does Hector listen to people? He doesn't. I mean, if you're reading, as you move on, you'll find Hector doing this again and again and again and again. He thinks he knows the will of the gods, that he has that prescient sense that, and, and we know the danger for all of us because very often we can claim that God is doing something and not always be right. It's a danger for all of us. Hector's particularly given to it. How well does Hector read? And by the way, why a bird sign? It's interesting. I, why Polydamus is, is finding an omen in this bird? Does it matter that it's a bird? That's the, that was the most important omen. Why? Bird of the Why? Plus the realm of the gods, I guess, that happened. Yeah. Yep. 
Um, if, if, I mean, if we had an extra class, I'd do. I'd go through the whole tradition of poetry, the lyric epic poetry, Robert Frost, Yeats, Wilbur, contemporary American. You, you almost cannot find a poet, a major American, or any poet, who has not written a poem about birds. Because birds, because their natural habitat is the heavens, are closest to the gods. They reveal something in the heavens. That's the long tradition. Robert Frost has written several poems on birds. Uh, every, every great poet has. Shakespeare, the Phoenix. Um, I could go on and on. I don't want to do that. We could go on and on. Turn to um, Book Nine, Line Four Seventy. Book Nine, um, Line Four Seventy. This is. Um, this is that um, declaration that Achilles makes about his own destiny. 410, um, um, Achilles, remember the three men, Phoenix, Aias, and Odysseus, have come to offer all this bounty to um, Achilles to come back into the war. He says, 410, for my mother Thetis, the goddess of the silver feet, tells me I carry two sorts of destiny towards the day of my death. Either if I stay here and fight beside the city of the Trojans, my return home is gone, but my glory shall be everlasting. But if I return home to the beloved land of my fathers, the excellence of my glory is gone. But there will be a long life left for me, and my end in death will not come to me quickly. Now it's interesting, I, I think I mentioned this to you, for the longest time that destiny claim puzzled me. It had a mystical quality. I mean, his mother, who's a goddess, is giving him a destiny. And then one day it hit me, there's nobody who doesn't have that same destiny. Every one of us, and I'm going to look ahead for Christ Christianity for a second, every one of us um, faces the same choice. Every, there's, what is the one thing none of us can escape in this world? Death, yeah? We're all going to die. We're all going to die. Father James is famous for saying that the end for all of us is a six by eight box, and that's what he used to say it. I'm sure you heard it here. We're all gonna die. The question that we face um, is the same one Achilles faced. Are we gonna die, com a long, are we gonna have a long life because we've just been comfortable? Or are there times when we're gonna have to risk something that's gonna involve us in real difficulties and whatever suffering or pain it brings on? I'm gonna give away something here. <laughs> I'm going to give away something here. Achilles knows that he has one of those two choices. Um, I'm going to try to give away as little as I can here. Patroclus, his friend, is going to go back into the battle when things go really bad for the Greeks. And I can't go beyond that, but it's going to put Achilles in a difficult situation. One, the decision that Achilles has to face then is that if he goes back into that war, he goes back knowing he will die. Okay? That's destined. Um, so one of the things that we're going to have to look at in this book is his choice to go back into that battle. Okay? 
and I want to look towards Christ now just for a second, if I can extrapolate on this for a second. What is it that Christ asks every one of us in our lives? Is there anything he asks that would allow us to have a comfortable life? I'm not aware of it, because every one of us is called to a cross. And I don't think that means every one of us has to follow the martyrs or the, you know, the apostles or the disciples, but we're all asked to go to a cross. And, and so I take by that, it means there can be the very, the most kind of ordinary things in our life going on. Choice to go to work today, not um, to um, bring up an issue with your husband or wife or a child or, you know. And you know in doing that, if you're taking Christ seriously, we're asked to go into it putting ourselves away. That is dying to ourselves. So whatever we do will bring a different spirit to it. If we're going into ourselves for our own pride or gain or in vengeance, the outcome is not going to be good at all. And we know that even if we're good, the outcome may not be good. Christ went to a cross. The disciples all ended up dying. So following him is no insurance that we're going to have a safe life. So just think about how that lines up with this book. Every one of us is faced with the same sort of destiny choice that Achilles has. We can either avoid problems and you know, be comfortable, or, and I, I don't want to magnify this. I, I, I don't, you know, I'm, I don't, I'm not saying join a war effort and go to the Mideast and, you know, be Achilles. I'm saying on, an, on the most ordinary scale, very often we, we face the ordinary kinds of problems in our own families that very often are not easy to face. So, how well does Achilles see things? I mean, at least he has some sense of, some clarity on what he's facing. At this point, he's not going into the war. Um, okay, so I just picked out a couple of examples. We could go through the book again and again. The, the point that I want to make here is that when, you, when, you, when we read through this book, it seems to me one of the things we can't miss is that there's a fall. It's like a, a blindness or a cloud hanging over all the men. There's one point in, it's in book, book five, when Athena comes to Di, um, Diomedes, I don't want to go to it, but it's in book five, when she is described taking the veil away from his eyes. She strips his eyes and he can see the divine. What we know from that is it's possible for men to see the other world, but something gets in the way. And one of the things we see in these men is that they're, they're blind in some ways and don't know it. They make bad judgments all the time, all the time. Um, so how well do people read? When you go through the story, you see that don't read very well at all. But they make decisions with such a spirit of assurance, you know, like they're always right. And very often, um, the consequences of those, um, those choices that they make are so far different from what they would have imagined over and over and over and over again. So once again, it's just coming at the same question from another way. What is it that places Achilles outside of that? What, what is it that brings him to this point at the end? Um, it's not that he doesn't make bad choices because he does. Patroclus is going to die. He's going to go into the war. He says, you're not going. Let me put on your armor. And Patroclus is going to go into the war. He's going to die. Achilles is going to come and say, 
my fault. He didn't see it coming. He takes it on himself and says, I, I let everybody down. So there's nobody exempt from this blindness. Everybody's involved in it. Everybody suffers in this book. Okay. The hero, what sets it, this is really interesting, what sets the hero apart in this book generally is this. Over and over and over again, you've, you've, if you've been reading, you know this. Men will be fighting in a fight, an individual fight, one individual against another. And they'll retreat. And Homer's line constantly is, um, they retreated into the swarm of their companions or the pack of their companions. What is that pack, that, that swarm? It's anonymity. When you go back into that, that pack, you're, you're no different from anybody else. You're not differentiated, you don't stand out. You're just one among a pack. In fact, you can say you lose your identity. To step outside of that pack is to be named and you put your life at risk. So the hero is the person who steps outside of that swarm, the swarm of my companions. Over and over again, you get heroes saying, or Homer saying, he fell back into the swarm of his companions and it goes back, we're at safety. So a hero is somebody who, who steps out and who's named. And this is the interesting thing. I kind of love Homer. This, oh, I do. Are you aware of anybody who's ever died in this book? And there must be a thousand. I mean, I did two Eastern everywhere, you know. Are you aware of anybody who ever died in this book who wasn't named? Now answer your own question or your or your thought. What do you, what do you make of? What's he doing? He's making them. He's making them people, not this kind of a big yep. general. Yep. Yep. Um, yep. Now remember, I'm here. I'll get. You know, I'll do. No. No. Let me take a second. Is everybody clear in that? There is anybody who dies who isn't named, and not only is he n named, but you almost you almost never hear of somebody without getting the history of their past their father, the battles their father was involved in with somebody. Because every, every person has a story, every person has a name, an identity. It's, I think it's his way of affirming the dignity of man. Think about, think about a war story. I mean, it's it, the, the, what's the provincial, the narrowness of us as peoples all over the world. If, if, if Americans are in Afghanistan and some of them die, and somebody did a war story on a battle involving Americans with Afghanistan soldiers or Syrian or wherever. What are the chances that the guy telling that story would name all the people who died on the other side? Not the other side. None. And Homer, Homer doesn't overlook anybody, whatever the side. Because each human being has a worth, a, a dignity, a history, a past, an identity. 
So even though, even though this is probably the bloodiest war story you'll ever read, I, I honestly believe that, what he does with it is extraordinary. Um, a hero is the person who's named. So in, in one sense, nobody who's killed is not a hero in that moment. He, he gives up his life in a battle. Okay. There will be a hierarchy here. Sarpedon, and Hector, Aeneas, Diomedes, Odysseus, Achilles, all those men are great heroes, but in some sense, every human being shares in a heroism because he's risking his life and dying. So. But remember that description. He blended in with the pack of his companions because once you do that, you're safe. There's an, there's an, an anonymity. You're protected. And, and it, it implies that destiny, a long life comfortable or a short life with honor. Um, a hero is somebody who risks, uh, because remember, to risk something means you don't know what the outcome is. You're entering into a mystery. You've got to take a step. Um, Turn to 194 and 195. Which book? Okay. Oh, sorry, book. Okay. Are the page, the page numbers not lined up? Are they, are they different? It's slightly different because we do that in this one. There's a larger preface than in yours. This is book eight, about line 470 or so. Um, Zeus has been quarreling, or rather, Hera 